in this episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Look, we, as a, as a country, we eat way too much food. We eat way too much carbohydrate. We eat way too much processed carbohydrate, way too much sugar. And that's why 40 million Americans are either diagnosed as diabetic or, or are pre-diabetic because they have lost this insulin sensitivity. They've lost, A, the ability to, uh, for their insulin to even speak to the cells. And so what happens now is when you lose, when the cells become insensitive, hey, we don't want to hear it, la, 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 the pancreas goes, well, fuck, we're just going to, se- we're going to secrete more insulin. And now your insulin levels go way up. Well, with high insulin levels and with insulin uh, uh, resistance, now insulin is, is also uh, inflammatory. So now you have sugar that's inflammatory, insulin that's inflammatory. It is cascade of events that is a, that is a potential for disaster for a lot of people. Welcome back to another powerful episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bear, founder and CEO of Bear Performance Nutrition. Every week, we bring you insightful stories, knowledge, and inspiration to help you reach your full potential in life, fitness, and business. If you enjoy the message we're promoting in this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on the platform you're listening to. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes that embody the Go One More mindset. All right, today we have Mark Sisson on the podcast. Mark has done a lot and is currently doing a lot. Uh, Co-founded Primal Kitchen, which... Me and my wife, Steph, love Primal Kitchen uh, condiments, marinades, sauces, uh, author of The Primal Blueprint, The Keto Reset Diet, Primal Endurance, Two Meals a Day. He has a very popular blog called Mark's Daily Apple and is a very active man. So Mark, welcome to the show. Hey man, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I, I really want to like kick off this conversation right away. You know, I just finished reading uh, one of your books, The Primal Blueprint. Uh, the unabridged one on audiobook. Love the book. Love the concepts. Uh, it's something I've been diving into more so this past year. And from what I understand, you're what I would consider one of the pioneers of this primal lifestyle. And I'm curious where you discovered this primal lifestyle and why you discovered it, or or how how it became yeah. such part of your life. Yeah. I was, you know, always interested in, in fitness and health and um, assumed that the fitter you were, the healthier you were, um, uh, faulty assumption, number one. Um, and, you know, from an early age, I started jogging, started running to school uh, just out of, you know, it was, it was faster than taking the bus uh, both ways. So I'd run to and from school. And by the time I was in high school, I was fit enough to go out for the track team and start winning the mile and two miles. So I got, I got sort of uh, pushed um, self-selected as it were into a endurance path. Um, I found out years later that I have pretty good um, genetic attributes for a combination of strength and endurance, which would have maybe made me a better parkour athlete or a, you know, Spartan athlete, but be that as it may, I, I, I settled into distance running at an early age. Uh, and because I was interested in performing well and I wanted to race fast and I wanted to race well, uh, I read a lot of books on uh, training. I read a lot of books on diet and how to maximize performance through the combination of diet and exercise and possibly supplementation. 
And over the years, I kind of went down this path of becoming a marathoner and then eventually an Ironman triathlete. And I had a pretty good career. I, I, I did well, but I was, um, I was sick a lot. I was, I was falling apart on the inside. I had uh, severe irritable bowel syndrome that really much, pretty much dictated what my, my day would look like. Uh, the nearest bathroom, you know, where that was. Uh, uh, I had, uh, you know, upper respiratory tract infections. I had arthritis in my feet. I had tendonitis in my hips. I had, you know, all these, I had bad acne. I had all these, these things going on in my body that pointed to something being wrong. And, and yet here I was trying to become the picture of health. I was trying to be the, that performing high performing athlete. When I had to retire at the age of 29, I think from these injuries and from these maladies, I really kind of rededicated the rest of my life to looking at ways in which we could be, I could be strong, lean, fit, happy, healthy, and productive with the least amount of sacrifice and pain and suffering and, and, and all of the sort of negative attributes that we associate with what it takes to be fit or healthy. That took me down a path, uh, sort of calling upon my background. I was pre-med in college and I had a, a, a tremendous interest in evolutionary biology. So I started looking at, you know, the evolution of the human species. How did we get here? How was it that we forged this genetic recipe that would prefer that we'd be strong and lean and fit, but somehow most of us never achieve that because of the inputs, the behaviors, the foods that turn on the wrong genes and turn off the genes that might, for instance, build muscle and burn fat. Meanwhile, we turn on the genes that make us sick and inflamed, uh, create uh, the conditions for type 2 diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So my, my career path went sort of down this track of looking for these hidden genetic switches that we all have um, informed by two and a half million years of human evolution. What were the attributes that every human uh, exhibited? What were the behaviors that we all sort of went through and did uh, over those two and a half million years to forge this recipe, this genetic recipe that would like us to be healthy? Uh, and it, that sort of turned into a template, if you will, a living template, which became the primal blueprint, the 10 primal blueprint laws, you know, eat lots of plants and animals, move around a lot at a low level activity, sprint once in a while, lift heavy things, play, get out in some sun, get adequate sleep, you know, avoid uh, poisonous things. It was a pretty generic list, but over the years, over the decades, since I first published it, it's been refined to a much more I think specific set of suggestions, if you will, uh, of, of how to optimize your fitness and maximize your longevity and, and, and at the end of the day, have the greatest amount of enjoyment out of your life possible. Well, it seems like people that are revolutionizing uh, these ideas that are, that are more common or uh, being argued and you know, coming into the, the biohacking space or making these strives to help people achieve greatness and their full potential and health and performance. It's, it's typically for what I'm seeing people who have reached the levels of extreme. So they've taken one, you know, category, say for example, endurance training. I've seen a lot of people who've taken endurance training to the far extreme thinking that it was going to achieve this, this high level of health and performance and then learning a whole lot through that, that extremity. And, uh, 
one thing I'm, I'm learning and realizing as I'm trying to push extremes is health and performance, they can, they can depend on each other, but more times than none, they're independently where like, if you are focused on health, sometimes you're sacrificing some performance, but when you're going after performance at the same time, you're sometimes sacrificing part of your health. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in my first book on training, I wrote in 1981, um, the runner's world triathlon training book. Um, I put forth this concept that health and fitness are these two, um, these two parallel lines that start out improving uh, in tandem together. But at some point, in order to improve fitness beyond an inflection point, you have to sacrifice health. And there's just no, there's no getting around that. Now, where, where is that inflection point for a lot of people? You'll never hit it because this really becomes, I think, um, most important to elite athletes. Um, think Tour de France cyclists, uh, top marathoners, um, you know, people who are really uh, aggressively challenging the limits of human endurance, uh, or you know, top top age group athletes who maybe shouldn't be doing this but are out pursuing their bucket list item of you know completing six Ironmans in a year or you know ten marathons in a month or some some you know bizarre concept like that. So for those people, there is definitely a point at which the pursuit of performance has a, a direct cost on overall health. Now, it might, be a not, might not be a long-lasting cost. It might just be temporary. But when I was a top uh, endurance athlete for the, for the last 15 years of my career, I got colds and flu five, six times a year. I, was all, I always had a runny nose. I always had some you know, some low grade infection because I had no immune system. I was eating the wrong foods. It was, it was not supporting my immune system from my diet. And I was overtraining. I was, I was thinking that more was better in terms of mileage. Uh, so, you know, I learned from that experience that if you're going to pursue true excellence, if you're going to be, try to be a world-class athlete, you will sacrifice health. I mean, Mark Allen, arguably the greatest Ironman triathlete that ever lived, you know, he'll, he'll basically say he probably left 10 years of his life on the lava fields uh, of Kona, um, going to the well, digging so deeply that that um, over his, his brain forcing his body to override every survival mechanism that his body had just to get to the finish line. Those are the types of stresses that we can put on the body that um, can have, you know, an accumulated well, they can certainly have an acute short-term effect on immune system, on uh, muscle damage, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, I, I personally suffer from some cardiac damage. I was a guy who, who ran my heart up to max four or five times every week uh, for 30 years. And so I have scar tissue in my, in my left ventricle, which is a very common um, effect that uh, my my generation of endurance athletes, which goes back to the '60s and '70s, uh, has, um, and it was again this you know kind of a badge of honor, a badge of courage. Through, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna um, instead of dropping the pace, I'm gonna pick up the pace. I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I'm gonna bring myself to a level of discomfort that is so great that 
um, everyone around me is going to have to drop out. So the, the, the top athletes in endurance contests know this, that the race is a race of attrition. It's like, how much are you willing to hurt yourself today and drag everyone along with you so that they all they all say cry uncle, they all tap out, they all, they all drop, drop off, and you're left winning the race. That's the nature of endurance sports. So that's a, that's a tremendous stress on the body. And over a lifetime, it can have some, some deleterious implications. You know, in the short term, I mean, I know you're, you know, you're getting ready to do a marathon. I don't know what your training looks like. And I, we can talk about, about that. Uh, you're probably experiencing some of the minor negative effects of uh, wrapping, focusing your training on just endurance for a while. Um, that'll, you know, you'll, you'll do your race. You'll have a great time. You won't have a great time. You'll do a great time. You may have a great time. I don't know, but that'll dissipate. And, and if you elect to not continue to become a career marathoner, you'll get back to this general overall level of fitness that, you know, that we all ultimately that I think that we all seek. If you could go back and, and change anything about your, your endurance career, looking back at kind of the way you ate or the way you trained, are there things that you would have changed to maybe increase the longevity of how long you wanted to become an endurance? Yeah, athlete? yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. I think given my genetics, I probably um, reached my true genetic potential. There, it, it wasn't as if there was um, four minutes faster that I could have run the marathon, for instance. I just don't think that was in the cards for me. I know my my VO tap my VO two max was my limiting factor. I mean, I was a five ten. I weighed one hundred and forty two pounds, which was thirty pounds less than I weigh now. Same body fat, um, but at, even at five ten, one hundred forty two pounds, I probably weighed ten pounds more than every other national class marathon in the country. So what I do, if I did things differently, I would absolutely change my diet. I would absolutely change the, the amount of miles I did, how I did them. Uh, every bit of my strategy would change. Probably in my case, the outcome would not have been uh, an improvement of performance, but it certainly to your point would have been an extension of, of longevity. I could have done it longer. But then that begs the question, why? Like if, if I, if I hit my genetic potential, why do I want to continue beating myself up for another 10 years or another 15 years? And I have friends who did this. I had friends who, who started out being almost professional triathletes and then did Ironman every year for 25 years. Some of them are dead now um, for that very reason. Um, but, but there was a point at which I said to myself, the, de the decreasing returns, that whatever I'm going to get out of, of this competition, um, far outweigh the potential benefits. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 69 next month. I'm not going to PR on anything ever again in my life, right? So I'm not going to do a, a, a personal best bench press. I was 52 when I did my personal bench uh, best on the bench, so I was fairly old, but I'm, it, you know, it's, that's not going to happen. Well, when you're in your thirties and you're doing these endurance contests, um, you know, that you hit a point where um, your best years may be behind you. And the question arises as to what's 
you know, what do I want from life? Do I, am I trying to, you know, prove over and over again to myself that I'm willing to go out there and hurt myself uh, on a, on a long distance event, or is it time to look for something else? That was the premise behind primal endurance. And so you open the show by saying, you know, that I've written about you know, the, 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 the concept that maybe this endurance training isn't that great for a lot of people. And, and it's not, um, but it's certainly a good bucket list item for a lot of people to complete a marathon. If you do the training, if you have the, the ability to go through the training to, to run a marathon and you can do it in an appreciable time, let's just say if you're a man under three and a half hours, that's a, that's a great bucket list item. That's a great way of focusing your training for six months to get through that. Um, but if you were to look at, at, and I have a lot of people that, that live in my community who are, you know, they're, they call themselves marathoners. And I'm like, well, what, you know, that's, that's great. How often do you race? Well, I, I race, try to race six times a year. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, what's your best time? Well, you know, 342, 345. I'm like, I was a top runner and I've never run three hours and 45 minutes at one time in my life. I don't know how you do it. I, do, I don't know how you are able to summon the mental discipline to do that. And really for what, for what ultimate goal? So with, with, with that, I, that's why I wrote primal endurance. I said, okay, if you're going to do a marathon or you're going to do a triathlon, then I'm going to show you how to train for it in a way that's the least harmful to your body in a way that's the most enjoyable in a way that probably will improve your health along with your fitness along with your performance. Um, and that was, that was the reason for, for the primal endurance book in the first place. It's interesting because I signed up for my first marathon. It was 20, 2018 in my first marathon. And for my first marathon, I got a little bug, I got the endurance bug. And I went from my marathon to Ironman triathlon and then back to the marathon and then back to another Ironman triathlon. And I was like, okay, what's this 100-mile race scene? So I did Leadville 100, and I did Rocky Raccoon 100, and now we're back in a marathon prep. So it's been three years of race after race after race. And it's funny because people that follow me on social media or through, you know, we, we document the series on YouTube, uh, they kind of sometimes want to put me in this box and, and think that I identify as a runner, but I don't identify as a runner. I identify as someone who who loves training and I love learning about the human body and, and what my full physical potential is. And, uh, after this marathon, which is in about a, a week and a half, I'm looking forward to still incorporating some sort of cardio in my life. And I'll, I'll always run, but I won't be running 70, 80 miles a week anymore. It's okay. What else can I explore and learn from? Cause I've learned so much through this endurance prep. How else can I optimize or improve my health and performance at the same time. Um, so I find that interesting because you talk in, in, you know, in your books and your blogs about the, the chronic cardio addict. And I found in the endurance community, there's so many of these chronic cardio addicts out there. Yeah. It's um, what is it that's addictive about, uh, about this pursuit of pain? And it's not really pain. It's what I call managing discomfort, right? So, but as an endurance athlete, pretty much your day isn't about fun. 
you know, you can say, okay, I'm going to go run with some buddies up in the hills and we're, you know, we'll run the trails and it'll be enjoyable and we'll be commuting with nature and we'll be chatting it up. But for the most part, you know, you're, you're managing discomfort, right? You're seeing how far you can go at a certain heart rate. Um, you're pushing the pace at sometimes if you're doing a tempo day, uh, if you're on the track doing intervals, it's, you know, it's hard work. Uh, and, and so the, I sometimes wonder what what the addiction is because I had it. I mean, I had it so bad that um, after I retired, I was forced into retirement. Um, I still trained like a maniac the same way for another five years. Like I couldn't just let it go. I just couldn't say, okay, that was a great phase of my life. I have to. I'm going to stop now and go make money and build a family. Uh, no, I still had to train. <laughs> Like like crazy, I had to. I still had to push myself. And I, the interesting thing then is once that finally dissipated after five years, um, once it dissipated, I never got it back. So you either have it or you don't. And I think if you have it, in and that addictive part, and I don't know whether the addiction is just habituation, like an addiction, a true addiction is you know I have to have whatever it is or else my body falls apart. I, I get sick, I get the sweats, I, whatever. True addiction is a chemical addiction. I think it's habituation. I think people are habituated to do this, to go out and, and, and do this. I think there's a mental aspect that says, um, if I don't work out today, I'm a piece of shit. I mean, that was certainly me. Like if the day wasn't a good day, a progressive day, uh, a positive day, unless I had a workout, right? So I had to get that out of my system. I And I did. And I got it out of my system to the point that I probably ran, I ran hundred miles a week for seven years in my, in, in the height of my running. So I was a, I was a runner. Um, I haven't run a mile in 20 years. I literally haven't put on shoes to go run a mile in 20 years. I have, and I've tried a couple of times. I've said, you know, I was, I was a good runner and I could still sprint like crazy. I'm, I'm still pretty fast. Um, and I'll do wind sprints on the beach and things like that. But yeah, maybe I'll put the shoes on and go go run a mile. I, I literally would get 200 yards down the road and go, what am I thinking? And I'd walk home. It's just of no interest to me. I don't have that, that mindset because it's not fun. Now, uh, before, we, before we started recording today, I told you I just got back from an hour and 20-minute uh, fat bike ride on the beach with a friend of mine. Um, I find that fun. Um, you know, we're out in in the warm air of Miami beach, we're riding on the sand. There's the, the views, you know, are spectacular. Um, we're doing a, 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 quite a hard workout. So it, it feels like, you know, we're getting that tough workout, that breakthrough workout in that I might do once a week. Um, and once it's over, it's over. I, and it doesn't exceed more than I almost never go more than an hour and 20 or 25 minutes. That's kind of my limit these days. Um, and so my, my routine is now, um, and I feel like I've, I've, for me, put together the perfect routine. It's one of these bike rides every week. It's a hard paddle on the water. So I go out with friends on a, a paddle board and I get a great hour long or plus upper body workout. So it's working the, you know, the abs and the serratus and, and the core and everything else. And again, it's out in nature and I'm seeing uh, manatees or dolphins. It's, it's pretty fun. Um, and I'm in the gym, uh, lifting weights once or twice a week. I do a leg day once or twice a week. 
Um, I play, you know, ultimate Frisbee. So I had this, this cross training combination of upper body with paddling, lower body with the bike, uh, weights in the gym. Much of it is contemplated to be uh, full range of motion, body weight type stuff. And, and from that, I feel like I'm now uh, a combination of a sprint athlete, a strength athlete, and an endurance athlete. So I feel like I could, I could hang with anybody in certainly my anybody my age in in a lot of different disciplines because I'm cross training in a way where it all comes together to enhance not just my fitness but enhance my health because I'm not doing any one of these things um, to the detriment of creating stress hormones in one area or you know if I were just running and I'm trying to be a great runner that's too narrowly focused on legs. And it's too catabolic for the upper body, which I'm sure you've probably seen since mm -hmm. you've been training. Um, good news is you get it back. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, paddling isn't enough legwork. It's some legwork. So, so I've found a way to put together the combination of strength and endurance and high intensity stuff. Um, actually, we just got a new, uh, we got a new rope pull machine in, uh, in our gym. Have you ever seen the, the Marpo rope pull machine? I have. Yeah. It's a, it's a beast. And so we, you know, I do, uh, you know, just four sets of one minute all out as fast as I can go on that. Um, it's, it's horrible, but it's one minute times four and you're done. And that's it. You walk out of the gym and you said, okay, I don't really, I, I don't feel the need to have to do anything else today. That was a sufficient you know, stress and a pump for my upper body. So I find things like that, 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 um, you know, that combine all of these different aspects of, um, a bio, uh, the biochemistry of fitness into the actual application of fitness. Could you explain what happens to the body? Like say when you were running a hundred miles a week and I mean, I'll see people post that, you know, they're on their, they're on their hundredth week of a hundred miles a week in a row, what is happening to the body when you're logging that many miles, whether it's on a bike? I mean, you look at a, a Ironman triathlete training 18 to 20 hours a week. What's happening to the body during all of that chronic type cardio endurance training? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, there's, there are stress hormones that are being uh, produced, you know, a lot of, a lot of cortisol coming out of the adrenals. Um, there's a lot of reactive oxygen species from the, uh, from the, uh, inefficient burning of different fuel substrates. So one of the things you asked, what would I do differently? I'd, I'd, I'd go back and I'd eat keto most of the time when I was training. So I'd, I'd reconfigure my met my metabolism, uh, to be much more metabolically flexible. When I was a runner, it was all about the carbs. So everybody carb loaded every single day. And anyone who's doing endurance in the seventies and the eighties, even into the nineties was doing massive amounts of carbs, like a thousand grams a day of carbs. And then going out and depleting them every day in the training. Um, the good news was you could, you could run pretty fast doing that. The bad news was you really didn't develop a particularly efficient uh, skill set for burning fats. And you almost, completely avoided the benefits of, of, a, of a brain that can run efficiently on, on ketones. 
So what I mean by that is um, a lot of times what happens in a race, when people say they hit the wall, you used to think, well, you hit the wall because you, your, your legs run out of glycogen, right? And that's why you hit the wall. Well, you know, they do biopsies on people who've hit the wall and, and the legs still have, you know, out of the total 500 grams distributed throughout the body, there were still 175 grams left in the, in the muscles of the legs. So you didn't deplete the glycogen in your legs. What happened was you, you got such low blood sugar, either from depleting the glycogen stored in your liver, which the brain was using to get, get you through that race, or um, hours into the race, your uh, stomach stopped emptying to allow the glucose that you've been taking at the aid stations to enter your bloodstream. And so the brain just said, fuck it, I'm, up. I'm done. And that's a brain that was dependent on glucose and nothing else. When you become fat adapted and keto adapted, you're, you're able to run at a much higher rate, burning a much higher rate of, of fats, deriving energy from, from fats. And your brain is now able to function on ketones in what is effectively the absence of glucose. And so the brain is less inclined to shut you down and say, time to go, you know, pull over the side of the road and take a nap. So that's been a real, um, I think, a, a, an area of great excitement and exploration uh, in the research in, in terms of fat metabolism and keto metabolism for endurance racing. Um, you know, Zach Bitter is a good example of somebody who's, you know, training uh, at, a, at a ketogenic uh, lifestyle and then will, you know, he'll train low, race high, train low carb, and then race high carb, meaning it doesn't hurt you to fill your, your, your glycogen stores up. It doesn't hurt you to carbo-load the night before an event. You don't get kicked out of ketosis or anything like that. It just, it's just one other source of fuel for you. So that's, that's one of the things that I would have done is probably um, spent more time adjusting my diet to become metabolically flexible through the use of a ketogenic uh, approach. Um, yeah. Yeah. Zach, Zach Bitter was my coach for my last hundred mile race for Rocky Raccoon. And uh, I know the keto athlete in the endurance space is becoming more popular. People are talking more about it. Um, I think it would be important to talk about because, you know, we're talking about being fat adapted and I don't want people to think that, oh, I just like instantly start eating fats instead of carbs and I become <laughs> fat adapted very quickly. How long does it truly take to become fat adapted? How low do your carbs have to be? How long did you be in ketosis? Like, what's that yeah. look like, that process? Well, I think if you're an athlete, I think, you know, the first, the first phase of adaptation, which I would say is an 80% adaptation, takes place between three to three and six weeks of aggressive keto training, keto dieting and keto training. Um, and by keto training, I mean, you're, you're eating keto, but you're also cutting your work output way back. Um, not so much the total load, but, but the, the pace. So you're, you're going at an aerobic pace, a comfortable aerobic pace, 90% of the time while you're doing this, um, this adaptation phase using the diet. And what we say in the book, uh, in primal endurance is, you know, that's a pace that is, uh, 180 minus your age, not to exceed 180 minus your age. So, you know, if you're, a um, 
a 40 year old athlete, uh, you're going to limit your heart rate to 180 minus 40, which is 140 and not exceed 40 beats a minute, pretty much for most of your training while you're going through this phase. People say, well, wait a minute, like, you know, but Mark, I can race at 157 beats a minute or I can race at 160 beats a minute. Why would I, like, I'm going so slow when I'm going at 140 beats a minute. Well, the reason you're going slow is um, you're, you're not good at burning fat. And so the, the, the minute that your aerobic um, capacity shifts and you start becoming better at burning fat, that 140 beats a minute now gets you 10 minute miles instead of 13 minute miles where you were frustrated because you were limiting your, you know, as, and so as you become better at burning fat, you're able to, your throughput of fat becomes uh, more applicable to the speed that you're racing. And so your times that you're running will drop, even though that max heart rate, that 180 minus 40 to get you to 140 max heart rate. Um, now you, instead of running again, 13 minute miles, now you're running 10 minute miles. And then Three weeks later, you're running uh, eight-minute miles, and then you're running seven-minute miles, and and that's that's indicative of the fact that you're becoming very good at burning fat. Um, I forget it was Zach or who, or who else it was. You know, they they were realizing that he was getting like ninety-seven percent of his energy requirements from fat while running six forty-five a mile. Like that was unheard of fifteen years ago. Fifteen years ago, people say, "Well, that's that's." Biochemically impossible. That's human. That's a human impossibility. You can't do that. Now, now that seems to be sort of the the standard. But you have to eat ketogenically in order to. You have to withhold carbohydrates to force your body to burn fat to force your mitochondria to upregulate. They call it mitochondrial biogenesis to make more mitochondria in which to burn that fat. And then you have to build a metabolic machinery so your brain can take the ketones and and thrive and and not and not feel like it's missing out on glucose because you never experimented with going keto. Does the intensity at which you're training, is, this, is that affected by being fat adapted at all? Meaning, you know, say I'm doing um, a purely aerobic based workout, a run below my max aerobic heart rate. And at that pace and that intensity, uh, I am fat adapted. I can use fats to, you know, as energy efficiently. As I increase that intensity, I'm running faster. Can I still use fats as efficiently? Absolutely. Not as efficiently, but it, but the percentage of fats contributing to your overall output is greater. So if, you know, if, if, uh, if you did that and you said, okay, well, at uh, six minute miles, um, I'm deriving uh, 75% of my calories from fat and 25% from carbohydrate. Meanwhile, the guy running right next to me, he's deriving... Um, only 50% of his, his caloric requirements from fat and 50% from carbohydrate, he's going to blow through his glycogen stores faster. So, so yeah, you can do the work together, but it's the percentage of uh, fat. You, you know, you want to be able to do as much, the highest level of work possible to, um, uh, to maximize your, your fat contribution to energy. And in so doing, um, you know, diminish, the depletion of carbohydrate reserves, of glycogen reserves, because there is a point at which you will, you know, it'll it'll start to get uncomfortable as your glycogen uh, does deplete. 
but the idea that you could uh, train to at this 180 minus your your age up to that point, you would almost you could you could argue that you're burning mostly fat, like 95 to 98 percent fat. And so if somebody says again, I'm not, but Mark, I'm not running that fast. It's like, well, that's that's the point at which that's the speed at which all of your energy comes from fat. And if that's only 13 miles an hour that you're doing because you were so you sucked at burning fat, you were great at burning carbohydrate. Look, I was great at burning carbohydrate. That my whole career was about you know managing carbs, and I I ran you know a bunch of sub two 21 marathons, and I you know 218 was my best, and I, I that was you know I could I could do that many times, but it was all carb based. Uh, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't deriving any of my energy from fat, but it was mostly carb based. And so that now the idea that you could somehow train in a way that would maximize your fat burning capability and offset the need to take in exogenous Gatorade along the race or something like that. That's big. That's, that's, that's huge. Uh, especially when you're talking about athletes that are, um, you know, a, a two or a 2% difference is the difference between first place and in fifth place. Now I know you, you, you obviously during your, your endurance training, you were strictly on a, a high carb diet and now it's more of a lower carb diet with these periods of, of going into ketosis and, you know, some keto diet aspects of, of your nutrition. I would love to explore and talk about the concept of insulin sensitivity and why that's such a, a strong foundation of everything you, you talk about in terms of the primal blueprint and uh, just to paint some, paint some light on, you know, because obviously when I was bodybuilding back in the day, like I got into bodybuilding and powerlifting before my endurance training. And I was just telling the guys in, at the HQ here, uh, some of these stories where I was eating 600 to 700 grams of carbs a day. I was 230 pounds. I was just eating as much as possible. And I would eat sometimes 200, 250 grams of carbs in one sitting just to get enough carbs in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm eating all these carbs, which some are fine. Like obviously I'm not eating 250 grams worth of sweet potatoes, but yeah, yeah. You, you take this massive load of carbohydrates, there's this blood glucose, and then your, your pancreas responds and sends all this insulin to try to clear this, this glucose out of your blood. What's happening in that reaction? And what is the importance of improving insulin sensitivity? Well, so insulin is a nutrient storage hormone. Um, it's virtually every animal um, secretes insulin. Uh, it's, it's a way to take the caloric energy that you take in through eating and do something with it and distribute it uh, either as um, glycogen in the muscle cells uh, or fat in the muscle cells or fat in the fat cells or protein in the muscle cells. I mean, there's, it's a nutrient sequestering hormone. So it's nest, it's really, it's, you know, probably arguably the most important hormone that we have. The problem comes when there's, um, when there's too much, uh, carbohydrate presented to the body, um, the pancreas, which secretes insulin, tries to sequester it, tries to get rid of it, tries to, because all of the carbohydrate that you consume will convert either to, to a form of sugar. Typically it'll convert to, to glucose, although fruit, as we know, is, is fructose, but let's just talk about the glucose conversion right now. So all of the Pies, cakes, candies, cookies, crackers, grains, breads, 
cereals, uh, every processed food in the center of the uh, of the, of the uh, aisle, center aisle of the of the supermarket, those all convert to glucose in your bloodstream. And glucose, glucose, while it's a fuel and it's necessary, in a healthy person, the amount of glucose in your entire bloodstream is the equivalent of a teaspoon full of sugar. It's not a big amount, um, at least in a healthy person. And so when you inundate your bloodstream with all of this glucose, the pancreas goes, shit, I got it. We got it. We got to get rid of this glucose. And so insulin goes way up and it, it, insulin, if you can imagine it, it's, it's a signaling hormone. It's signaling to, to try and open the gates and get, get some of the sugar into uh, the muscle cells. But if the muscle cells are already full, which in most cases with most people who don't exercise, the muscle cells are going, hey, we've got plenty. We don't we no more room here. Send it down to the fat cells. So then, then the glucose will look for a fat cell and, and the insulin will open up the fat cells. And the next thing you know, the fat is gets you get more fat. The insulin at a high level of insulin locks fat into the fat cell. It's it's one of these laws of nature of the body that once if insulin's high, it's not going to allow fat to come out. Because it's a it, you're you're sort of demonstrating the presence of of sugar and carbohydrate. So um, the problem, well, many problems arise. But if there's too much glucose in the bloodstream, that's where you get real serious issues. That's where you get the the diabetic neuropathies and retinopathies, and you you know the loss of the amputations because the the, the tiny capillaries in the in the in the, the blood vessels get gummed up, literally gummed up with this sugar combining with proteins in the bloodstream and things like that. So it's, it's bad to have high blood sugar, which is why your doctor will always test you for, you know, your blood glucose levels um, after eating and, and after fasting sometimes. So one way to, um, to make sure that the insulin is speaking to all the cells and getting things done is, we, we talk about insulin sensitivity. If the cells are sensitive to insulin, then they'll, they'll hear, they'll hear the, the, the noise. They'll, they'll hear the signal and they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll allow, um, we'll allow more of the sugar to get in uh, or more of the amino acids to enter the muscle cells. Um, if the cells are insensitive, if they can't hear the signal, then again, we have this problem where it backs up these, these things back up in the bloodstream. Now we have high blood sugar. We have, instead of a normal 80 to 120 uh, milligrams per deciliter, whatever the, the, the number is, now it's 300 or 400 or 600. And that becomes very problematic for a lot of people. So, so look, we, as a, as a country, we eat way too much food. We eat way too much carbohydrate. We eat way too much processed carbohydrate, way too much sugar. And that's why 40 million Americans are either diagnosed as diabetic or, or are pre-diabetic because they have lost this insulin sensitivity. They've lost, A, the ability to, uh, for their insulin to even speak to the cells. And so what happens now is when you lose, when the cells become insensitive, hey, we don't want to hear it, la, 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 the pancreas goes, well, fuck, we're just going to, we're going to secrete more insulin. And now your insulin levels go way up. Well, with high insulin levels and with insulin uh, uh, resistance, now insulin is, is also, uh, Inflammatory. So now you have sugar that's inflammatory, insulin that's inflammatory. You have this cascade of events that is a, that is a potential for disaster for a lot of people. What do you do about it? Well, 
you cut the amount of sugar that you take in. I mean, I, I we, you know, we've been talking about this for 15 years, that if, a, if you are a newly diagnosed type 2 diabetic, we can cure you in 90 days just through diet and exercise. You don't, you won't need medicine. You won't need, you'll, you'll no longer be a diabetic, a type 2 diabetic. If you just cut the sugar and cut the access to the sweets and the pies, and the cakes and the candies and the grains and the, and the, you know, the cereals and things like that. There are some other nuanced things. We're going to have you cut back on industrial seed oils. These uh, um, Franken food oils like canola, soybean, sunflower, things like that, that are also involved in insulin insensitivity. Um, but, you know, when you were, when you were bodybuilding, guys were shooting up insulin. They wanted more insulin because they knew that it was, that it was a nutrient sequestering hormone and that they wanted to drive all this, all this stuff into the muscle cells, right? Um, it's, it's horribly dangerous to have done that, but a lot of the bodybuilders were doing that back in the day. And I suspect some still, still do. In terms of, you know, going full keto um, or incorporating some carbs in your diet, because I understand, have you, have you, have you gone through periods of your life where it's been strictly keto for long periods of time, or have you always incorporated some sort of level of carbohydrate in your diet? Oh, I've gone, um, you know, I, I do weeks of keto on a regular basis. I, I do, um, you know, a, a sort of a, um, what I call a keto reset, right? So I'll just do a couple of days or a couple of weeks where I just don't have any carbs at all. And I don't have to force myself to do this. It sort of happens. I'll, I'll sometimes go three or four days and I'm like, wow, I haven't had carbs for a couple of days. I think I'll hang out here for another week or two and just, just do that. Um, I don't stay keto because I like uh, a wide variety of food. So I like the crunchiness of vegetables, although, you know, you, you can be keto and still consume vegetables. Um, but I, you know, every once in a while, I like to have a sweet potato with some butter on it or a couple of bites of bread or something like that. But I would say I'm pretty keto-ish most of the time. I mean, I'm, I'm rarely um, over a hundred grams of carbs in a day, even on a, on a high carb day, I'll, I'll never be in excess of 200. And are you still hitting, even though you're not strictly on, like you're still incorporating some sort of level of carbohydrate in your diet, is your body still going into ketosis during this no. time? No. So, so what happens is once you, ketosis is a weird word and I don't, I don't like the way it's been used in the diet community. Um, because the word osis sort of has a connotation of some pathology. Like there's too many ketones in your, in your bloodstream. That's, that's what ketosis is. Um, you know, if you have a tendinosis, it's a pathology with your tendons. Um, so ketosis describes an excess of ketones. Ketones are uh, part of they're the fourth substrate, right? You have fat, protein, and carbohydrate. You really shouldn't combust protein at all. Protein should go to repair, building muscle, building bones, making enzymes, things like that. You shouldn't be combusting. You shouldn't be burning protein. So I, it, it kind of irks me that, that the, that the, science community has assigned a value of four uh, calories per gram to, uh, to, to protein. Um, carbohydrate, again, you know, you, you certainly can combust that and you should combust it. You should burn off. I think you should burn off carbs on a regular basis. You know, you should do some glycolytic work, um, some high intensity work a couple of times a week. Um, fat, 
becomes the preferred fuel for most people who are who are keto-ish. And then that leaves ketones. And people who are new to the ketogenic diet who never who really haven't built a metabolic machinery to, to burn ketones, um, they produce excess ketones and you can detect it. You can smell it in their breath, or that you can that you can see uh, you know the purple color on a pee stick when they when they pee into a ketone uh, you know a test strip, or you can detect it in the blood if you do a ketone blood test and you see that they might be you know uh, five millimolar or six millimolar and here they are bragging about how whoa you know my ketones are so high I'm I'm in ketosis this is great I'm winning well it's not how the body uh, intends for you to make and and, and utilize ketones ketones are a great fuel. They're a valuable fuel. They're an efficient fuel. Um, the muscles can run on it. All they prefer, they prefer um, fat. Um, cardiac muscle likes ketones. The brain loves ketones. Uh, and so when you become fat adapted, the body says, look, we, the muscles know how to, to extract energy from fat really well. We've, we've increased the number of mitochondria. The throughput is great. Um, all day long while we're just at, met, at rest of metabolic rate, all we need is fat. We don't even need glucose at all or glycogen at all. If we're going to do a little bit of work at the end of the day, the muscles have enough glycogen in them to do a reasonable amount of work. And then we don't even need to carbo load for, the, for that to replenish over the next two or three days. Um, and then the brain says, look, um, if you're going to be, be you know, withholding carbohydrates, that's cool. I can build the metabolic machinery to, to to really run very nicely and efficiently on ketones. And the irony here is that if it's the brain that you're really only using ketones for, uh, and you've now become keto adapted, the liver can produce 750 calories a day worth of ketones. It's amazing the amount of energy that can be produced by ketones. The brain really only needs about 500 calories a day uh, in most people. And the brain, doesn't have these wild swings of energy demands. Like if you go to the gym and you do a heavy leg day, your thigh muscles, your glutes, uh, you're going to be doing 50 mets, 50 times the metabolic throughput while you're doing that leg stuff, right? It's going to be the energy demands, albeit over a short period of time, are incredible. Meanwhile, while you're doing it, the brain is just cruising along on cruise control. The brain's energy demands don't go way up because you're doing a leg day. Or they don't go way up because you're playing a chess tournament or studying for the LSATs. The brain's energy requirements are pretty steady state throughout the day. Well, the liver knows this. And so the liver, once you become fat adapted and once you become keto adapted, the liver says, I don't need to pump out five millimolar and piss it out and waste it, uh, you know, and offend people with my keto breath. I'll just make just enough ketones to keep the brain happy. Five, six grams an hour. I don't know what's the... Yeah, five or six grams an hour is all is all that's required to keep the brain functioning probably better than on most glucose-based diets. Um, and, and that's that nice little space that you get in. So what does that look like to somebody who's really fully keto-adapted? You almost never test at a high rate of ketones on your little test strip, right? You Because your, your liver's making just enough ketones to keep the brain happy, you might be at 0.4 millimolar, 0.4 or 0.5 millimolar, barely into what they would call ketosis. But that doesn't mean you're not an efficient metabolic uh, 
flexible machine. It just means that you've 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 adapted to this new um, metabolic flexibility, this new utilization of substrates. So you're not wasting ketones and you're not um, um, you know running hot because you're over consuming carbohydrates. For instance, you found this nice little uh, like perfect area where your energy is coming mostly from fat, a little bit from ketone, and then there's enough carbohydrate to keep you, you know, interested in doing high level work if you choose to do that. I'm curious of your thoughts on the the keto space as a whole, because, you know, when I started getting into the the fitness space, I was in college, I was studying nutrition. It's about 2012, 2013. And that's when the flexible dieting and if it fits your macros approach started becoming very popular where people are tracking calories and macros. And it was, if it fits your macros, you can eat whatever you want. And then when I started being introduced and hearing about the keto space, you know, years ago, even though I know it's been, it's been popular for much longer time than that. From the outside looking in, it was people just eating whatever fats, using the excuse to eat more fats, whether processed, whether it was like kind of all this junk. Do you think most people get the keto space wrong? I think most people get the keto space wrong. Yeah. I think it's getting better, but I, I feel like, um, you know, and it's, it started with, uh, with Atkins who basically really never looked at the quality of food. And so people, you know, felt that they could eat all the fat they wanted of any kind. And, and, uh, that was a, that was kind of a first misstep. And then if it fits your macros came along and same thing, uh, there's to this day, there's still, uh, people in our space, otherwise, you know, otherwise well-educated people who still think that this is a calories in calories out basic equation. And that was the whole, if it fits your macros thing. Right. But, you know, 2,400 calories of Skittles is not the same as 2,400 calories of uh, grass fed ribeye and steamed broccoli. Um, and I don't care, you know, what you think about, about, thermodynamics, most of what happens in the body happens as a result of hormonal intervention. And so it it really becomes more of an equation of calories burned versus calories stored. And if I'm going to burn calories, I want a certain uh, hormonal configuration to prompt the burning of those calories appropriately uh, without without causing uh, reactive oxygen species or without causing some metabolic derangement. Um, and yeah, so, so, I mean, it's the idea that, um, you could, uh, look at a ketogenic diet and say, well, there's a company making keto desserts. And so I, and it may, you know, they have a lot of allulose and allulose is zero carb. Well, allulose isn't zero carb for, for a lot of people. Allulose is just like sugar, but it says keto. So I'm in, you know, I can, I can eat that. Um, I think a lot of people who increase their fat intake on keto do it with with nuts. You know, people think nuts are are free on keto. And and the truth is, I've watched people consume 1,200 calories worth of nuts in one sitting, you know, on their way to eating dinner. And I'm like, no, if your intent is to perfect your metabolism and maybe lose some excess fat weight, that's not going to help. And even though, yeah, it sort of technically is keto those are pretty inappropriate choices. I mean, there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to do keto. And the right way is to, is to, is to select foods from a list that are, you know, either natural or naturally derived that are devoid of 
um, of harmful industrial seed oils, um, you know, that, that are nutrient dense as opposed to just offering up a label that says keto friendly or, you know, keto approved. In terms of calories in versus, versus calories out, because, you know, you still see that, that argument where people are focused on calories rather than the, the quality of the nutrition um, and really focusing that on fats and identifying industrial seed oils. It's, it's crazy when, you know, this past year, my wife and I have kind of taken inventory of everything we've been consuming and going through uh, our fridge and our, the grocery stores and trying to find foods and items without in these industrial food, uh, seed oils. And it's tough. I mean, they're in everything. And I know that was the premise of you creating Primal Kitchens. When was it that you identified the problem that was caused by these industrial seed oils? Um, because I feel like they are becoming, the issue is becoming more popular and prevalent, but it's still you know, not talked about enough. I don't think so. Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, there are a lot of, uh, you know, people have been in the ancestral health space for decades. We're now kind of coming around to saying, you know, we talked about how bad sugar was for a long time, but we really overlooked something that may be even more insidious and pervasive, and that's industrial seed oils. So Kate Shanahan, for example, is now she's on a massive bandwagon about these, uh, these seed oils. Um, I started to think about it 15 years ago, and I really started to rail on it about 10 years ago. And so I had a, uh, in 2010, I came out with a cookbook, um, uh, Primal Blueprint, Healthy Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings, because I recognized in 2006 and 2007, I started recognizing that once you get rid of the processed foods in your pantry and you come down to that short list of meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, a little bit of fruit, some starchy tubers, it's not a big list of food. Um, it's good. It's great tasting. It's nutrient dense, but it could get really boring really quick unless you figure out a way to change the methods of preparation, the sauces, the dressings, the toppings, the herbs and the spices, the way, the way you cook them. And with healthy sauces and dressings and toppings, you could come up with, you know, not an infinite number, but a big number of different ways to serve the same basic foods um, and maintain a taste differential and a variety and an interest and a sustainability. So, um, the book, uh, I self-published the book, and it was on the heels of my uh, Primal Blueprint, my original Primal Blueprint, which went to number two overall in the world of all books on Amazon uh, for a couple of days. And, um, and so I thought, well, this is going to be great. This healthy sauce dressing the topics, this, this cookbook is going to crush it. And it didn't. It was horrible. It's, I mean, I sold like 10,000 copies or something like that. So I realized that people, while they recognize that they want healthy sauces, dressings, and toppings, no one was making, they don't want to make them themselves, clearly, and no one was making them uh, from, a, from a, you know, a consumer packaged goods perspective. Uh, the closest, you know, I looked at like Annie's tried to do it, but Annie's did not do a good job. And, uh, you know, Newman's own, Paul Newman was a childhood hero of mine. And, uh, you know, you pick up a, a bottle of Newman's own extra virgin olive oil dressing and the first two ingredients are canola and soybean. Oh yeah, there's extra virgin olive oil as the third ingredient. But I mean, I'm like, 
do, really? So I set about to create the sorts of healthy fats that people could put on their food with what I call reckless abandon. In other words, in the old days, if you were into health and you were health conscious, if somebody said, here's some mayonnaise to put on your, uh, on your sandwich, um, it would come with the admonition that, well, just use it sparingly because it tastes great, but it's not very good for you. It's, it's, it's full of harmful fats and oils and whatever. Or, you know, Oprah used to, when she was on that diet kick, would tell people, here's how you eat a salad. You keep your dressing over here and you keep your salad over here. You take your fork and you put it, you dip your fork in the dressing and then you go stab some lettuce. I'm like, seriously, dude? Like, like I'm a big, I used to be a big salad guy and I would try and douse my, my, my salad with, with dressing. So I was not about to use anything sparingly. So I wanted a, a product that literally the more you put on whatever it was you were putting it on, the better that product, that, that food became, became for you. And that was the original thought process behind Primal Kitchen Foods. We have like 85 different SKUs now. I mean, it's, it's, we've, you know, we're 20 plus salad dressings and, and eight or 10 mayonnaises and, and uh, pasta sauces and barbecue sauces and steak sauces and dips. And we're, we're really, um, I think we're transforming how people eat by providing uh, these healthy fats in a way that they can um, appreciate and, uh, and be confident that it's good for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the line. It's funny because uh, it was probably about a year ago, I was looking for uh, a mayonnaise to, to make something for, for me and my wife. And I saw the mayonnaise, um, I forget who made it, but it was on the shelf. It said made with olive oil. I pick it up. I turn it around and the same thing. It's like the first ingredient was like vegetable oil, canola oil, and then it was olive oil. And I'm like, it's in there. It is, but it's, it's not the primary ingredients. Um, so yeah. I, I love what you guys have done with, with primal kitchens because I'm the same way with, like, with my salads. Um, I know you have like this infamous video on, on YouTube. It's like Mark's big ass salad. And, uh, I love like loading it up with the dressing. I, I don't want to be sparing with that. I want to want to load it up, right? I want those healthy yeah. fats. Yeah. So yeah, it, and but just the term vegetable oil is is a mis. There's no vegetables don't have oil for the most part. So you know they they are taking a generic. Well, soy is kind of a vegetable, and corn is kind of a vegetable. You know, and so they're they're taking poetic license with the idea that these are actually grain. They're seed oils, um, and they've been. They've not been bred for their oil content. I mean, who, you know, a hundred years ago, who would have thought that corn was a source of oil? Uh, you know, you actually ate corn. <laughs> now, very few people actually eat corn. They, you know, they, they convert it into all sorts of chemical dyes and oils and things like that. It's pretty, pretty crazy. But um, yeah, the, just the, the term vegetable oil is false advertising. I do like the way you, you opened up um, the Primal Blueprint, talking about the 80-20 rule. And I heard you talk about this in an interview before where, you know, people hear about Mark Sisson and, and, and your diet and, you know, the principles of your diet. And is there ever pressure when you go out to dinner, for example, and you're eating a piece of bread and someone sees you and someone says, that's Mark Sisson eating a slice of bread. You know, and, and you have yeah. that 80-20 oh, yeah. rule. And I thought that was very refreshing because I think a lot of people who are especially high achievers, um, you become very obsessive with things and with diet, it's really easy to become super excessive and try to hit 
that mark 100% of the time. And if you don't hit that mark 100% of your time, it becomes, it turns into another type of eating disorder. Um, how do you how do you practice the 80-20 rule? And how do you help people practice that? Well, the 80-20 rule means, it basically means strive for 100%. And, and don't beat yourself up if you make some mistakes. And if at the end of the day, you came in at 80, 20, you win. Uh, don't shoot for 80, 20, and then you know, find yourself at 60, 40 or 50, 50, but you know, strive for hundred um, percent. I hang out with people a lot when I go to events um, and I go to large group dinners and things like that. And people see that, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I live, I, I practice what I preach on both sides of that, I, I sometimes will have a piece of bread with some butter on it, right? I'll put, um, I'll put sugar in my coffee. Uh, I just, I'll order dessert, but I'll have two bites of dessert, not the entire thing. Um, I don't think about grass-fed steak when I go to a restaurant. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm living my life and I want to enjoy aspects of it without being, uh, too tough on myself, uh, certainly without invoking an eating disorder on me or anyone else around me. It's just an awareness. It's just an awareness of what it is you're eating and and um, what the impact, short-term impact might be if you eat it now or eat too much of it now or whatever. And just, just an awareness, an intuitive, sort of intuitive type of eating. I don't want people to think, oh my God, what would Mark say? What would Mark do? What would Mark order on this menu? I'm like, wait, you know, no, just, just look, look at the menu and order what you want. And, um, you know, if it's, um, in a restaurant where this happens for everyone, uh, somebody said, I, I will ask, you know, what sort of dressing do you have for the salad? And that's the way of a great dressing. I said, what's the basis of it? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's vegetable. And I'm like, okay, bring me some olive oil and some, and some, uh, you know, some vinegar and I'll be happy. I'll be very happy. Um, I'm not, but that's one of the areas where people really can fall down on the road traveling is, is restaurant. Uh, virtually every top restaurant still uses crappy oils in the kitchen. Uh, and they can really, you know, destroy an otherwise very healthful, amazing, great tasting meal by dousing it with some crappy oil. So just, you know, be aware of that, of that uh, possibility and ask, if they can do something different in the kitchen, I'll, I, I'll ask if they can grill something in butter um, or, you know, or olive oil, whatever it's, it's a, uh, you just have to be sort of intuitive and aware, uh, aware of your surroundings. No, I'm, I'm embarking on a four month European trip soon. And, um, you know, looking forward to that part largely because I, I know that in most cases they'll actually be cooking with olive oil wherever I go you know, and uh, the wine will be free of additives and the bread will be, uh, you know, the European type of wheat, which isn't as uh, gluten high in, in, in that uh, offensive gluten content as U.S. wheat. So, um, you know, be aware of also where it is you're eating. You find that other countries do better at that than the United States in terms of quality of nutrition, sourcing and these industrial seed oils, or is it, is it everywhere? Yeah, I do. I do. No, I do. I mean, I think, you know, Europe, if you've, if you've been to Europe, I mean, every, there's, a, there's an olive oil orchard every other street corner. So, um, you know, they, they get it. They get, uh, they have hundreds of years of experience in producing uh, healthful oils. 
for the most part. I mean, you know, there, there, are, there are exceptions. Um, their, their meat is typically uh, grown both more humanely and, you know, more according to its natural diet. So the, you know, the, the lamb or the pork, the goat, uh, the chickens, they're more pastured than you would come to count on in the U.S., um, and as I say, the, the wines in Europe, especially uh, the off-label wines, are typically, you know, local vintners who don't do massive irrigation, don't add one of the 76 U.S. Department of Agriculture approved additives like beaver anal glands or whatever it is they put into some of the wines here. Um, you know, the, skin, the skins aren't over macerated to give you a deep, rich color, so they don't have the tannins and the histamines that we find in the U.S., so, um, and as I said, a lot of the, a lot of the grains that are converted into breads or baked goods are, are far less offensive in terms of, uh, you know, like I can eat a, a piece of pizza in, in uh, most countries in Europe and not be as negatively impacted as, as I would in the U.S. Well, I know you're, you're about to go on this, uh, this big trip to, to Europe. So I, uh, I hope eat some good food and enjoy it, Mark, but. Yeah. I really appreciate the time today. Uh, amazing information. And if you ever find yourself in Austin, Texas, would love to do another interview. And there's a lot of things I'd love to pick we, up. I know we tried. We tried a, a, about a month ago. And uh, I'm sorry about that. It fell through. But I'd love to come see your space here. Yeah, no, I'd love to. There's a lot of a lot of things I'd love to pick your brain on. And uh, I know you're full of information. It's it's really refreshing. And more people need to to hear more about it because it's, I mean, it can be game changing for people's health. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, Mark. Good luck with the marathon too, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. What are you shooting for? Give me time. Uh, I'm going for a, a 248. Ooh. Yeah, my last one was a 256. Yeah. Uh, so we had a big training block. I'm coming off a lot of like low heart rate, ultra prep training. So I'm, I'm in the shape right now. Yeah. We, we started the taper today, so I'm feeling good. Good. That's, a, that's an aggressive, uh, for a big boy, that's an aggressive time. I like that. I yeah. like the way you think. No, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bear Performance Podcast. Please leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to if you enjoyed it. It helps us to grow and reach more people with the intent of changing lives through the Go One More mindset. If you are ready to take your health and performance to the next level, head over to bpnsubs.com to take the first step.